word, let's turn together to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, our text this morning begins in verse 30 and extends to verse 59. As we come to the end, not just of this chapter, but really of a section that extends all the way back to John chapter 5. There, starting in John chapter 5 and verse 19, we've seen how Jesus has been in dialogue uh, with those who oppose him, with the, with the Jews, with the Pharisees, once the scribes and the Pharisees. But over and again, Jesus has been in dialogue and it's gotten increasingly tense until here at the very end of our chapter, here in chapter 8, they're going to pick up stones in order to st- stone him, in order to kill him, to accomplish their objective. They've been harboring murderous intent in their heart. And here at the end of the chapter, they want to execute it. They're not able to because Jesus' hour has not yet come. Uh, But we're going to discover here in this section why it is that that they are so upset. It's because they're enslaved. Slaves to their sin, written by the devil himself, uh, and being told that the only way they're going to be set free is if they come to Jesus. But that's not just a message for the first century. It's a message for the 21st century as well. It's a message for you and me. The only way we will be set free is, is by Jesus. But if the Son sets us free, then we'll be free indeed. But in order to hear this, we, we need not just our ears, we need our hearts open to the gospel, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we come to you this morning uh, as your people desiring to hear your word once again. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. And that you would open our eyes of faith, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our reading together this morning, we'll begin in verse 30 and read down to verse 38. And then uh, we'll go to verse 48 and read to the end of the chapter. We'll, We'll pick up those middle verses as we work our way through the text. So Romans, excuse me, John chapter 8. I did that at the earliest service. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Now verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. 
Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. But if I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm certain that in a room this size, uh, that there are many of you who have seen the movie Braveheart, uh, the fictional telling of William Wallace from the 13th century. I saw part of it. Um, I'm not a big fan of just random violence or warlike violence, except when it's in a cartoon form like the Marvel movies or whatever. Uh, so when Sarah and I actually saw Braveheart, I didn't wear my contacts that night. Uh, I wore my glasses. Uh, I'm pretty blind without my glasses. Every time there was a battle scene, I would take off my glasses and all I would hear would be thwack, thwack, thwack heads falling off and rolling. And once the battle scenes were over, I'd put my glasses back on uh, and watch the movie. So one of the parts that I did see, because I had my glasses on, uh, was the familiar speech right before the, the climactic battle when William Wallace, in giving perhaps the great reason why the Scots were fighting, said they can never take away our freedom, freedom, and they go charging off and I took my glasses off again and missed the battle. But it's a great line, and it shows up all the time. It's the aspiration of our hearts, isn't it, that we might know true freedom. Of course, there's other places and other scenes, and far more important in real life, where people cry out for freedom. Dr. King, on August the 28th, 1963, there at the Washington Mall, as he was uh, asking our country um, to provide genuine civil rights and equality for African Americans, long for the day when African Americans and white folk and everyone else might cry out, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. That line has such power, doesn't it? Because it's a longing for true freedom. There are others who will come along and say that it's important to know the truth because the truth will set you free. That's a line that comes from our passage this morning. You know, these scenes that we remember or these sayings that we hold dear, they, they speak to us because we long for freedom and for independence and liberty, which are, of course, all good things. Uh, they're all good things when applying to the political realm or the cultural realm or even personally that we might know some measure of freedom. But of course, freedom really only makes sense when it's set in opposition to its opposite. We only long for freedom when we know bondage. We only long for freedom when we know enslavement. 
what Jesus speaks of here in our passage is in terms of freedom, it only makes sense when we recognize that, that there is a more profound slavery that we experience spiritually than we would ever know politically or culturally or even interpersonally in our relationships. A more profound slavery, which requires a more thoroughgoing and glorious freedom, which is what Jesus offers. It's notable that the way this section is structured, beginning in verse 30 and running to the end of the chapter, it's structured just like the previous section. I I made a big deal when we looked at chapter 8, verses 12 to 29, that I am the light of the world, controlled everything that followed in the verses up to to verse 29. It's the same thing here. Uh, When Jesus says in verses 30 and 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's, he's actually saying something that will run all the way to the end of the chapter. He's, he's trying to tell these Pharisees, and ultimately he's trying to tell you and me, we're far worse off than we know. We're far worse off than we know we can possibly imagine We're in bondage, we're in slavery, we are being ridden by the devil himself. But he has come to offer true freedom. True freedom. Of course, when he offers that, at least in this scene in the Bible this morning, the immediate response back was, why do we need freedom? Did you notice that as we read the response of the Jews? Look look again at verse 33. After these familiar words of verses 31 and 32, the Jews answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Uh, You can almost imagine uh, these Jews thumping their chests while they say this. We've never been slaves to anyone. Abraham is our father. How can you say this about us, that we are enslaved, that we need freedom? Jesus shows them, and he shows us this morning, exactly why we need freedom. It's because we are slaves, and slaves in in a far more dangerous condition. How does Jesus put it? Look at verse 34. Do you see it? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Responding in verse 33, the thumping their chest, the Jews were thinking in terms of, a, of an ethnic freedom or a political freedom or even a cultural heritage. And they said, we've never been slaves. Of course, more on that here in a minute. But they were slaves. They were slaves to sin, to capital S, sin as a power. How do we know? Well, because Jesus tells them they were actively trying to work out their twisted desires, They were were trying to to kill Jesus, and their murderous intent actually flowed from a heart uh, held captive by sin as a great power. They were slaves to sin, and it was evidenced in their sinning. 
Well, here's the thing, though. You and I are really no different. We believe what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us we were all born in sin. We, we were all born with this contagion, with this poison that, that's deep in our motivation so that our, our desires work their way out in all kinds of ways. We can't help but act out in sin. Well, the psalmist teaches us to sing these very realities. In Psalm 51, we're taught to sing, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, David there in Psalm 51 teaches us to sing and to recognize that from our earliest days, we've had this contagion. We've had this poison. We've had this thing called sin within us, this corruption. And this corruption inevitably works its way out in actual practices of sinning. We inevitably act out. That's what our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, teaches us. When it says, from this original corruption, from this poison or contagion called sin, from, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. You see, we're, we're slaves. We're slaves to sin and to sinning. We're under sin's dominion, if you will, under sin's thumb. Uh, and yes, as, as bad as it's all it is, we're, it's even worse than we know. Not only are we, we sinners that sin, not only are we, we remaining slaves to sin, evidenced every time we act out, but we're actually profoundly self-deceived about the whole matter. Yeah, I think you hear the self-deception here among these Jews, among these Pharisees, in verse 33. Look at that again. They, they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And part of you wants to go, oh, you've never been slaves to anyone? Well, then who are all these Romans hanging around? I mean, since 63 BC, Palestine, and by, by extension, then the Jews had been conquered, mastered, enslaved by the Romans themselves. And then before that, the, the Greeks and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Oh, the fact of the matter is that the Jews of Palestine have been enslaved by masters and overlords for over 700 years. And yet in their self-deception, they, they trumpeted their connection to Abraham and claimed their freedom. They said, we've never been slaves. Don't, don't, don't pay attention to all these military men hanging around. We're free. No, you're self-deceived. And yet how much worse is it when you and I become self-deceived about our sin and about our sinning? We, we are self-deceived. We don't tell the truth to ourselves about our sin. And in fact, we lie to ourselves all the time about our sin and sinning. That's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is the writer telling us? He's telling us your heart lies to you. 
Your, your twisted heart lies to you because your heart is dominated by this capital S sin. This sin is a power. And sin dwelling in the innermost parts of your heart in which you were conceived, in which you were born, it's lying to you all the time. You're not so bad. Don't worry about that. You're really a good person at heart. And so that you become hard to the, to the reality of what's actually going on. And you start telling yourself, well, yeah, I make a few mistakes, but I can stop anytime I want to. That's what we tell ourselves, isn't it? I, I can stop slandering others anytime I want to. I, I can stop getting drunk anytime I want to. I, I can stop sleeping with someone who's not my spouse anytime I want to. I can bring that relationship to, to an end anytime I want to. Well, I can stop looking at porn anytime I want to. I'm not enslaved. I can anytime I want to. I can stop raging at my spouse or using angry, bitter words, bitter words anytime I want to. You know what's going on? You're lying to yourself. Or perhaps better, uh, the deceitfulness of sin in your heart is, is lying to you. Because here's the reality. You're a slave. That's what Jesus tells us here. We are slaves to sin. And what's worse, we're self-deceived about it. That's why we need freedom. We need someone to set us free because we are slaves. But, but we actually need to go a little bit further down this road. Uh, certainly sin masters us. Capital S, sin is a power. It masters us. But we need to ask a further question. Who holds us captive? Uh, one of the outstanding features of this whole dialogue between the Jews and Jesus that extended back to, to John chapter 5, verse 19, and extends all the way through the end of this chapter, is, is that the question of fatherhood shows up over and again. And particularly, who is Jesus's father? But here in this section, it's not so much even Jesus's paternity, if you will. Who is Jesus's father? No, the Jews will actually start to raise the point or the question about who their father is. You see it in verse 29, or excuse me, verse 39. Verse 39, they, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And in claiming Abraham as their father, the Jews were, were making both an ethnic and a spiritual claim. Ethnically, we are Jews, descendant from Abraham, but spiritually, we are Abraham's descendants. Because we are Abraham's children, that means that we're God's children. God is our father because Abraham is our father. But Jesus contradicts all of that, doesn't he? No, he actually is telling them that because they are slaves to sin, they are actually held captive by another father. Look again at verse 39. What does Jesus say? He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me 
For I came from God and I am here. I came of my own accord. Excuse me, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? To these who are enslaved to sin, they're entertaining notions that they might in fact kill him. And in doing so, in holding these twisted desires and seeking some opportunity and avenue to act them out, the Jews are actually demonstrating they are held captive by another. You are doing the works your father did, but you can't help it. You're held captive by him. You're bound to replicate his character. And what's the devil's character? Well, Jesus is going to tell us. Uh, He's a murderer and a liar. You see it? Verse 44 again. You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so here in this scene, the Jews are demonstrating that they are slaves to sin and held captive to the devil because they're, they're trying to kill Jesus and they're slandering him. They're lying about him. They're acting out just like their father does. Well, it happens earlier in this scene. We read in verse 41 where they, they make reference to Jesus' paternity. We're not born of sexual immorality like you, Jesus. Later, they're actually going to mock Jesus as a, as a Samaritan, as, as demon-controlled. They're demonstrating in their lies, in their slander, that they're just like their father, the devil. And they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. They have their father's character. My friends, every place we see this happening, not just in the first century, but in the 21st century, we see the devil at work. We see the devil at work in and through others. And this happens through us, happens through others, as we walk in step with our Father, the enemy. The Apostle Paul tells us this in one of the most familiar passages in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So they were dead in trespasses and sins which they once walked. They were like spiritual zombies, but, but they couldn't quite help it, uh, they being us. We couldn't quite help it. Why? We were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That word following in Ephesians 2, it's, it's a stronger word than simply following in a path. Here this week, Sarah and I are going to North Carolina, hope to hike some. When you go through those mountains, you've got these little paths, and you can walk the trail, and we kind of choose our way and make our way through the wilderness. That's not the word. We don't follow the prince of the power of the air like we've chosen a path and simply kind of meander down it. No, we're being led, held captive, so that we can't help but follow the enemy, can't help but follow the devil. When we walk in the ways of sin and sinning, When we actually live out of this power called sin, we actually demonstrate that we are being ridden, held captive and ridden by the devil. It's probably one of the more picturesque examples that Martin Luther gives in his famous book, The Bondage of the Will. 
I trust you're familiar at least with that title. Luther wrote that book in 1525. In the midst of his argument, he said this, the, the human will is placed between God and the devil like a beast of burden, like an ox or a donkey or a mule, a beast of burden. If God rides it, it wills and goes where God wills. If Satan rides it, it wills and goes where Satan wills, nor can it choose to run to either of the two riders to seek him out. But the riders themselves contend for possession and control of it. What is Luther saying? He's saying that our very wills, which are part of our own corrupt hearts, uh, they, they end up being ridden like a beast, like an ox or a donkey or a mule, and, and the devil's riding us so that we are actually held captive to accomplish his dark purposes, whether it's murdering or slandering or lying or sexual immorality or the rest. When we sin, we actually sin in line with what the enemy wants. He, he's the one who's riding us. And the problem, of course, is we can't free ourselves. You can't free yourself. You, you can't stop anytime you want. No, you actually need to be set free by another. Which brings us back to the very beginning of the section, doesn't it? To what Jesus said. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And also verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Who sets us free? Well, the only person who can set us free from sin's dominion, and the only person who can overthrow the devil himself and claim our wills for himself is Jesus he, he is the answer to our problem of, of sinful and sinning hearts. Now, y'all know the case. We're here at Independent Presbyterian Church. We've actually gathered to hear God's word and to worship together. You know that Jesus is the answer to the deepest problem of our hearts. I want to ask you this morning, why is that true? Why is it true that Jesus really is the only solution to our sinful and sinning hearts? Why does Jesus make the claim here that if we abide or if we keep his word, we'll be his disciples? What, what does he mean when he says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free? What, what is all this about? What does it mean? Well, I think it comes down to, to knowing who Jesus is. You see, what we, what we have to see here is that when Jesus says in verses 31 and 32... When we read that, we, we might be tempted to run to abstraction. After all, Jesus here talks about the truth and knowing the truth in such a way that the, the truth sets us free. And, and so we might, might be tempted to talk in terms of theological truths or theological facts or, or propositions, but, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus is talking about the truth, my friends, he's talking about himself. We're going to see it in a couple of chapters, but you know it already. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, Jesus is telling the truth because he's speaking to us about himself. And he's speaking to us about himself, especially who he is. 
See, I think that's what's at stake in that last section that we read together in verses 48 to 58. See, the Jews continue to denigrate Jesus in verse 48. They, they, after making a comment about his paternity in verse 48, they call him a Samaritan and say he's demon-controlled. You're a religious and racial outsider. They basically are cursing at him. And then they're saying that he is, he's demon-inspired and demon-controlled. But, but as, as the Jews continue to trumpet their, their connection to Abraham, Jesus concludes the entire discussion by saying something that's actually uh, incredibly astounding. Uh, something that actually changes the way we should look at him. It's right there at the end, verse 56. You see it? Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have, seen, have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the Greek, those, that word I am, it's ego of me. But that stands in for the, the Old Testament name for God. I am that I am, Yahweh. It's as though Jesus was saying before Abraham was, Yahweh, I am. Jesus is claiming then to be the self-existing one, the one who is God himself, the one who was before Abraham, the one who made Abraham and made promises to Abraham, the one for whom Abraham was looking. See, Jesus is claiming something about who he is. He is God. And the entire Gospel of John has been making this argument over and over and over again. I've been trying to show you that, that the last verses in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and by believing might have life in his name. That's what Jesus is saying here. The only way you will be set free is by believing in Jesus, in who he is. But, but believing is not consent to a theological truth. It, it's not consent to a, a series of facts or propositions. No, believing is trust in such a way that you are trusting him with your entire eternity. Life now and life to come. It's as though you were pushing in all of your chips not just chips that you've won in a poker tournament, but everything that you have, if you can envision all that you are and all that you have as is, is chips, you're pushing them all in. You're betting them all on Jesus. I believe in him so much, I'm going to trust my life and eternity to him. That's what believing in Jesus means. It means resting upon him and receiving him, embracing him, as we've already confessed this morning in the statement of faith, embracing him as he's offered to us in the gospel. See, believing is knowing Jesus, knowing him not just as, as God come in the flesh, but as your God and your Savior and your Lord and your friend. Friends, you have to see that theological propositions will not save your soul, but Jesus will. And theological propositions will not set you free from slavery to sin, but Jesus will. And theological propositions will not set you free from the devil himself. But Jesus will. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that theology is unimportant. I am scheduled to teach systematic theology one at RTS this fall. Right? I like theology. I can teach theology. But I'll never forget a man in our congregation that I served, not in this place, in another place, when he died, had one of the finest theological libraries I had ever seen. But I knew the story of that man. I knew his messy heart. I knew the waywardness of his relationship with his wife and with other women. I knew that he was reading those theological books to try to solve the problem of his messy heart, and he was never going to succeed because, friends, theological propositions won't save you. Jesus saves you. A real, vital relationship with him, and that's because of who he is. It's because of who he is. We're not just talking about a historical figure, some kind of great human. We're talking about God who transcends time and space and is present with us now. You can have a real relationship with Jesus because he's alive. More alive than you are. Right here. He offers himself to you. You see, that's how we're set free. It's because Jesus sets us free. And Jesus can set us free, not just because of who he is, but also because of what he does. What does Jesus do? Well, he tells us in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Keeping Jesus' word, remember, means abiding in his word. And ultimately abiding in him, resting in him, knowing him in a real vital relationship. But Jesus promises that those who know him will never see death. What does that mean? Well, we know he doesn't mean that we will, it means uh, that we won't die physically. Jesus died physically. He was crucified on the cross. He was buried. He remained under the power of death for three days. So I don't think he means that. But what he does mean is that even though we physically die, the real us will never die. For those who put their trust in Jesus, the moment we close our eyes in this physical life, we are present with the Lord, more alive than we can possibly imagine now. And in the last day, we will be put back together again. When the trumpet shall sound and the voice shouts, our souls and bodies are put back together again, and death will be finally overcome. We, we will never um, die. We will never die. Because we have eternal life now that will be evidenced in the resurrection day then. So that both now and then, we will know true, true, real, abiding freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the devil. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from death's destruction. So that what Jesus said is actually true, don't you see? If the Son sets you free, sets you free you're free Indeed. And that's true for all kinds of people. Not just for us, but for all kinds of people. Jesus sets sinners free. Sometimes it happens that as I'm meditating on a passage during the week that I run across something that, that God says, here, use this for the sermon. I was flipping through the current issue of Christianity Today, and if you've read that magazine, you know that in the back page, uh, they print a testimony of somebody's conversion. Um, this month, it was uh, a Muslim from Iran, from Tehran in Iran, who came to Christ 
Well, how did that happen? How did it happen that, that a Muslim in Iran came to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, this was his story. He said, one day when I was 17, a relative of ours came to visit. She had recently become a Christian through a relationship with a missionary working in Iran. And so she decided to come to our house and attempt to share the gospel. Jesus is Lord, I recall her saying. And he's come to save us from our sins. And she supported her claims with several Bible verses, including John 3.16 and John 8.32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A little bit later, he says, something else in our relative's gospel presentation stood out. Her claim that Jesus can set you free from fear and save you from eternal death. These words were medicine for my soul and food for my hungry heart. I had never heard such words of peace and reassurance from any spiritual leader in the Islamic world. In some strange but powerful way, I thought I could sense God's presence and authority in what she said. At the time, I had no understanding of anything like a prayer, uh, or praying a salvation prayer. I didn't know how to repent uh, of my sin or receive Christ as my Savior. But as I went upstairs to my room, I couldn't stop reflecting on the idea that Jesus held the key to eternal life. Suddenly, I found myself on my knees. As I looked up, I said, Jesus, I know you are Lord. Save me and set me free from my fears. Friends, if, if Jesus can set a Muslim in Tehran, Iran, set him free from his sin, from his slavery to sin, from the devil, from all of his fears, set him free from death, don't you think he can do that for you? Don't you think he can do that today? Don't you think that, that if you were to come to the sun, that what Jesus says is true might actually be accomplished in your life if the sun sets you free? You're free to, indeed. Don't you think there's true freedom in Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we do come to you, O Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we, we rest our hearts in you. Lord, we long to be free, to know true freedom, the, the freedom that you offer that's, that's, that's real, eternal, abundant life, real, genuine freedom, freedom of spirit, freedom of heart, freedom from the claims of the enemy, uh, one little word shall fell him. It's your word, Lord Jesus. You, you're the one who sets us free. And so, Lord, please do your work in our hearts and lives this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.